Ghanaian highlife veteran and Afro-funk pioneer, Ebo Teller, with his song, Apiaqua Bridge. Apiaqua Bridge is the title track of my last album. But when you see that bridge, it's only about 20 feet long. It's just a small bridge. But it is so significant. It is a place where a lot of people have met their fiancés the first time. And uh, my interest in it is that that's where I also met my wife. <laughs> a sweet thought from a sweet man. Hello, Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRX. And welcome to a very special Hip Tip edition, the first in our two-part Ghana series, Ebo Taylor and the pioneers of Afrofunk. Ebo was born in Cape Coast, Ghana in 1936, and he's seen and made a lot of history. Ebo was a key player in the evolution from high-life music into a distinctly West African take on funk, we recently spent time in Ghana researching that history for this program. And along the way, we learned that Ebo is one of the most beloved and admired musicians of his generation. Here is music and video producer Banji Anov. For me, Uncle Ebo has always been an amazing contribution, not to Ghanaian music, but to music of the entire world. Uncle Ebo brought horn arrangements as complex as anything you ever heard in any big band jazz and made them into everyday songs in a very unique way. There just is no genre of music on earth that is funkier than Ghanaian funk. It is the highest representation of the art form of funk. And for those of us who have spent our lives trying to play funk, once you hear Ghanaian Afro-funk and also, of course, Nigerian, the game is over. All you want is more of it. <laughs> That's UC Irvine historian and aspiring funkster, Mark Levine, who joined us for his second visit to Ghana. Mark is a devotee of the Afrofunk sound that emerged in West Africa in the 70s. Most people know this history through the Afrobeat music of Fela Anikulapokuti, but it turns out there's a lot more to the story. One of the things that this project and being here again has allowed us to do, I think, is appreciate Fela as not just this unique, amazing, one-of-a-kind artist, but as part of a much larger genre, a kind of funk belt that stretched all the way across West Africa from Senegal to Côte d'Ivoire and Ghana and Togo and Benin and Nigeria, you know, into the Congo, the Sudan, Ethiopia. And it reminds us that these cultures that have been divided for so long have histories that are incredibly interconnected. Hmm, funk belt, eh? Well, I like that. But you know, in each of those places Mark mentioned, you find local varieties of, uh, well, let's call it funk lore. Ways that musicians and music lovers understand and interpret the history of this music. As Mark Levine notes, it's no simple matter to decode the origins of Afrofunk. The roots that have extended from West Africa into the Americas are just so dense 
it's impossible to tell a simple history. You're talking not only the relationship between the northern and southern peoples in Ghana, but then you have the crew fishermen that go all the way up and down the west coast of Africa and really bring the guitar. Then you have colonialism and British imperialism, which creates these colonies in places like Jamaica. And then the return of those people as soldiers and band members in these uh, military brass bands and other bands in the latter part of the 19th century, which brings not just this new sound of calypso, but all the other rhythms back to Africa, but somewhat refracted. And that's just the prehistory of all this. Then you have almost every generation of jazz, big band, bebop, post-bop, plus Sinatra, plus rock and deep purple, as Apo told us he was a fan of. And then, on top of all that, you got James Brown and the funk tradition. James Brown. I mean, everybody was crazy over him. And then that song, Black and Proud. Although it came in through a modern idiom, the message is do your own thing. You know, get down and look into your own history. That's Professor John Collins, another guide on our Afro-funk journey. When James Brown released Black and Proud in the late 60s, John had just moved to Ghana, and he's been there ever since, digging into music and history. And that's what we're about to do, starting with the music that was moving West Africa in the 1960s, a sound born in Ghana called High Life. veteran Nana Ampadou and the African Brothers. I'm Georges Collinet with Ebo Taylor and the pioneers of Afro-funk in Ghana on Afropop Worldwide. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the New York Council for the Humanities, and the National Endowment for the Arts. If somebody was to ask me what highlight is in just one sentence, I'd say it's a cousin of Calypso. John Collins. First of all, Calypso from the 1880s or 1890s was brought by black soldiers stationed at Cape Coast. So there were 6,000 of them at Cape Coast and Almina between 1873 and 1901. They're brought by the British to fight the Ashantis and they brought the typical Calypso rhythm, which then woke the Ghanaians up who were playing brass band music. So the first thing they lifted was this rhythm, you know. Well, speed that up and fill it out a bit and put it behind a marching brass band and you get something like this.
Across West Africa, Ghanaians have always been known for being good horn players. Banji Anof. Part of it comes from the brass band tradition, which is really quite massive in Ghana. In my lifetime, I've met many great, great horn players. And when I notice they are good, they say, oh, of course I'm good. I was taught by a Ghanaian. We are hearing the Man Cheers Brass Band, love that name, of Tema, recorded by the Afropop team as they rode through the streets of Accra on the back of a flatbed truck, serenading urbanites at the kickoff of the 2013 Afro Jazz Festival. In a brass band, one person is playing a melody or one person is calling the tune and everyone else is just responding, playing something very rhythmic, something that just keeps the groove going. So brass band music is very exciting because there is no formula. Everyone is just playing along. And a lack of a structure, when you have 12 or 14 or 18 or 20 horn players, could result in chaos. But it doesn't. Instead, it results in a beautiful music. The elements of high life really came together in the 1950s, before Ghana's independence. And the high life king in those days was E.T. Mansa. Ebo Taylor was there and remembers it all. Before E.T. Mensa, there were ballrooms where Ghanaians played waltzes, quick step, tango, bolero, and um, mambo. At that time, it was six eight. You know, then all of a sudden it slowed down. It slowed down to a point that reflects the uh, gentleman and the lady dancing. And that's what uh, I think uh, brought about what is her life. When dances were organized, say maybe weekends, you see uh, the colonial masters and the elite black people, you know, all of them together, rubbing shoulders and things like that. Another veteran of modern Ghanaian music, Jedu Blay Anbole. Bands will be playing, but when they play quick step, you see few people on the floor. When they play boleros, slow foxtrots, and then more than, you see few people on the floor. But when they play high life music, you see both the colonial masters and the black elite, all of them on the floor. I saw that that's the kind of music that brought unification. High life unified Ghana's diverse communities as well. It was not tied to any specific ethnic group, and that helped it spread beyond Ghana's borders. Anytime that Ghanaian bands went to Nigeria, they were adored heavily. When E.T. Mason went to Nigeria, he was adored like a king. Because Nigerians hadn't seen bands playing reading music. You know, so Ghana was far ahead musically. I mean, high life took from marching band jazz, took from big band jazz, took from calypso, took from soca, took from banlogo, took from adua, took from yomkro, took from everything around it. Those African-style spongy mansions are local percussion and vocal traditions in Ghana. 
They were part of the complex web of sounds Ebo Taylor grew up with among the Fonti people in Cape Coast, west of Accra. My father was a school teacher and a keyboard player. He played organ in the church. I was born in 1936, so those were the Hitler days. You know, you live on the fear of uh, being bombed. In the night, there's a blackout, and we prayed a lot. Twice I grew up, I was also learning, you know, listening to the organ. You know, I think that accelerated my interest in the minor key, because the Catholics sang all their chants in the minor. Kyrie I think that got stuck on my mind, you know, as in, you know, the minor mood. Minor key melodies also came to young Ebo's ears from local sources. Your mother takes you to the funeral and, you know, you hear people uh, sing this kind of adinkum and adzwa and apatampa music with only drums, no, no accompaniment. These are common type of music that everybody hears at funerals and at, you know, even in the house, your mom might start singing that kind of bit, but it's all in the minor mood. But when the British came and colonized this country, I think there was an invasion of this Westminster uh, kind of music, which was written in the major key, like, uh, Oh God, I'll help in ages past. I hope for years to come. I'll shelter from, you know. So Ghanaians, you know, naturally adopted that kind of a harmony and it became part of our lives. Ebo took us to his hometown, Salt Pond, to hear a group of traditional musicians he records and performs with. Bonzi Konkoma is an ensemble based around square frame drums known as Konkoma. It was raining when we got to the beach, so we waited and Ebo talked about the music we were going to hear. Konkoma preludes the alive. When there was no standard drums, that's what we, we were using. In the standard drum, the same guy is playing all the four simultaneously and he concentrates maybe on the snare and sometimes he's the tenor and sometimes he's the alto. But here you have the chance to improvise on your drum so the bass drum can improvise and the snare can also improvise. Everybody has independence. That's the style of the Konkoma drums. They all play together. Konkoma is what musicologists call a proto-high lifestyle. Of course, it's African. But as John Collins explains, it's like Calypso. It was filtered through the Caribbean and came back to West Africa as Gumbe. The music returned in the hands of black subjects of the British Empire. The first were the 550 Maroons from Jamaica. They had a war with the British and some of them were repatriated to Freetown and they took Gumbe music with them. By the way, which is a frame drum, and it's the ancestor of the Konkoma drum. In some African countries, these drums took on different names. So in Ghana, they became called Konkoma drums in the 1930s. In Nigeria, Gumbe became Ashiko. His young styles, already well-traveled, became the basis of sounds we know well, like Juju, Fuji, and High Life. 
Well, in Salt Pond, the rain eventually stopped, and we got a taste of Bonzi Concoma full force, with Ebo singing a song in praise of Ghana's first president, Kwame Nkrumah, while Ebo's son, Roy, rapped about the corruption of the current president. In all, quite a show. Yeah. Back from always rapping. singing Bonzi Konkoma with Ebo Taylor and his rapper son Roy. Ebo told us he gets a lot of his electric band repertoire from the Fantiakan songs he grew up with in Salt Pond. Here's an example, a war song called Aisama, played first by Bonzi Konkoma and then by Ebo's full band. Aisama! Teller with a new recording of an old Fanti war song, Aisama. As with so much of Ebo's music, you hear his taste for jazz in this recording, and that goes way back to when he was a young guy listening to the radio in Ghana in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. 
there was a song they called In the Mood. You know, the progressive jazz came much later. Like, uh, I'm in the mood for love and all those songs. And uh, we thought that was hip. So we started playing uh, in the band, and then Charlie Parker, you know, appeared on the scene. And it was more rhythmic, so and we all learned to play that without knowing actually what the harmonies were. We tried to catch the melody strokes. Ebo started working jazz ideas into high life while playing guitar for the Broadway dance band. Incidentally, one of the first high life bands to use sheet music. Because we were playing big band sheet music, I wanted the high life also to have the same form of arrangement and introduction, the verse, a development stage, and then recapitulation. We bring the verse back and then we go to coda. In the same way that Lady Be Good has been arranged or too close for comfort. joined the Broadway band as the guitarist. Then I could look at the chord sheet and play without knowing you know, why I should play this chord. Then I went to college in London to learn harmony and orchestration at Eric Gilder School of Music. It's in the West End. But it was sponsored at that time by the Ghana government, Ghana High Commission Education Attaché in London. The year was 1961, and the newly independent government of Kwame Nkrumah supported promising musicians and helped them gain skills and training. And it was serious study. Ebo based his major on Dvorak's New World Symphony. It was in the West, you know, I came back to Ghana to teach and arrange for musicians like Pat Thomas, C.K. Uh, Man, J.W. Uh, Ambuli. I wrote music for Jewel um, Aka, Abby Krenzel, and other musicians. These artists were giants of Ghanaian music in the 60s and 70s. And there was another West African icon Ebo got to know in London, a Nigerian guy called Fela. At that time, Fela was in Trinity College. We became friends, you know, uh, both of us from West Africa, and we had a common interest in her life. And then we also had the desire to become a Miles Davis and a cannibal And we met quite a lot. Oh, he was frisky. I mean, like any Nigerian, he's frisky and, you know, arrogant. And so it was very hard to move around with him. You know, he put up his trumpet and say, hey, wait for me, I'm going to fight these white people. And we all have to go to the uh, police station, talk, talk, talk before we are released. And I will swear I won't go out with him again. And the next minute you call me, Taylor, come, let's go. And then I'll be following, you know. He's my friend, but we have different characters. Ebo and Fela sat in with jazz and calypso groups, even some ska bands from Jamaica. 
For all the ties between their music and history, Ebo says there was a certain distance between the African and Caribbean musicians in London. Culture also separates us. The guys who play Calypso in Jamaica think that you have to learn from them. Sometimes they think the African is a bit backward, you know, but we also feel that we have the original rhythm. Sometimes they have to learn from us. There are some moments that they recognize that uh, we have some originality that they don't have. But all the same, the social attitude is that he's hip because uh, he stays with a more respected society. You are coming from the jungle. One of the things that has blown my mind is that Abel Taylor, an amazing horn arranger, who is the epitome of the Afro-funk sound, is profoundly influenced by Frank Sinatra and one of his main arrangers, Billy May. Absolutely. Abel told us that Billy May was number one in his book, especially for the work he did with Sinatra. Abel's favorite song was Day In, Day Out. Day in, day out Same old hoodoo follows me about Same old pounding in my heart Whenever I think of you And darling, I think of you Day in and day out So I sat out and studied the style of the Mill Orchestra and I had this album on the turntable for almost a year. I wouldn't take it off. I would just keep on listening to it, and it was my training ground. Abel picked up on the way Billy May had the brass section going back and forth with the singer. He also loved May's use of trombone to add extra heft to the sound. Listen to May's opening for Sinatra's Paper Doll. Now listen to the opening of Abel Taylor's Mizin. Taylor with Mizin. Wow. Coming up, 
The Ghanaian Afrofunk story continues with Jedouble Ambole, Geraldo Pino, James Brown, and Fela. You can read extensive interviews with Ebo Taylor, Mark Levine, John Collins, and many others in this program, and so much more on our website, afropop.org. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX. That's Ebo Taylor on guitar and Aaron Sukura on Seprewa, a traditional Ghanaian lute used in the oldest forms of palm wine music I love so much, one of the elements of high life. Aaron is improvising on a groove from Ebo's grandmother's tribe, the Grushi in northern Ghana. For all his love of Western sounds, Ebo has stayed connected to tradition. Even when he returned from studying Western music in London in the early 60s, he found himself unexpectedly re-immersed in it, thanks to President Kwame Nkrumah. Here is John Collins. Nkrumah did something in the 60s which was very interesting. He took the big bands like Broadway, the Messengers, George Lee's Messengers, and he sent them to the Arts Council for three months training in African drumming and dancing to sort of boost up the traditional rhythmic side of the dance bands. Nkrumah wanted to bring the African dancing and music to the dance floor for everybody to do it. That was his aim. And I think he saw that it's only the dance bands who can do that. That's Stan Planch, a veteran highlife arranger who worked with Ebo in two bands, Broadway and the Uhuru Dance Band. These days, traditional music is taught at the University of Ghana in Legon, where we met up with Ebo and Aaron. Ebo is happy to see kids learning roots music, but he regrets that the university does not also teach jazz. Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, Billy May. Ebo regarded Aaron's Seprewa uh, with a certain suspicion, pointing out its limitations as an instrument for popular music. You know, for example, if we have to play uh, this high life. Yeah. what you play. In fact, Ebo and Aaron had invited us out to the university to further our education on Ghanaian folklore. Here is how Ghanaians first heard the rough, raw sounds of American blues and funk, especially James Brown. Aaron Sakura. But you said that James Brown's way of singing might have come from the style of uh, singing from the North. You know, and, and in the Northern, we have a special way of singing. And James Brown, I mean, if you think about the slave trade, I mean, I don't know, maybe his ancestors or whatever might have come from the northern part of Ghana. 
You're talking about the weather, food shortage is the suffering of the people of the north, the Sahara, the desert. There's very little uh, rain and too much sunshine. It's not like uh, God save our gracious skin, you know. It's like uh, the guy is lamenting. The guy says, yeah. It goes from the low octave to the high octave. Here's a taste, Dagomba music from northern Ghana with Shaibu on Goje violin, Aaron on Jili xylophone, and Motela Mohammed on shaker. I think it's the music from the belt of the tropics. It's all over North Africa. You hear similar type of music from Tunisia, Morocco. He's wailing, he's not just singing. You see the depth of the blues in his song. The most famous thing, of course, James Brown, what made the funk part. Yeah. You're talking about the blues part, but the funk part was what? Yeah, that's why I want you to hear the rhythm sections from the coast. The melodic structures actually come from the north, but the rhythm that impacts the dancing comes from the coast. say there was a day and then uh, what does that uh, mean oh, and all these things that he, he does it, there's no answer to it but you can see that it's an inner feeling that has to come out James Brown it is more original than what is going on today and it's more intense the guy wants to be liberated through music and he's saying it you know and this is music that comes from a deeper form of blues, even more than the Afrobeat that we play now. The excitement in this kind of music can never be achieved in Afrobeat. It was that, that style that fella used to change to get the Afrobeat. Actually, James Brown toured Nigeria, and it was a flop. I wasn't there at that time, but I understand James Brown tour was a flop. Nigeria is a, a very different country. In those days, it's the traditional hard life that they go for. Most of their bands play the Ghana type of high life. Well, I'm not sure a lot of folks who did see James Brown in that 1970 tour of Nigeria would call it a flop. But the point is, musical tastes don't change overnight. They evolve. This kind of funk music drew the attention of Ghanaians much later. It was in the 70s that Ghanaians started recording funk high life music. 
The first to come out was CK Man's Funky Our Life. Arranged by, you guessed it, Ebo Taylor. Yeah. started faded out of people's minds when the funk actually emerged. Because the funk had a similar rhythm like the high life that could turn even the average illiterate in the street on. People were singing James Brown songs without knowing the meaning. Yeah, James Brown says, I might not know the day. I might not know the day. But people started saying, I mean not to know the day. You know, they don't understand it, but they, they like the sound of it. And they like the dance that accompanies uh, the music. You know, and especially when he shouts and everybody, you know, get excited. In 1971, Accra was treated to a massive public concert called Soul to Soul, with Wilson Pickett headlining. Of course, by then, soul music had already peaked, and Wilson Pickett wasn't soul brother number one; he was number two, and so on. Uh, so, but I mean, the main impact of Soul to Soul was not soul music; it was Santana. That had the dramatic impact on all the guitarists. Hold on there, John. We'll save the Afro rock story for another program. But coming back to Soul Brother Number One, Panjianov also remembers the advent of James Brown in Ghana. Yeah, I was very young, but I remember that that name made musicians quick because Soul to Soul had Wilson Pickett and Ike and Tina Turner and the Harlem Boys Choir and Santana. But suddenly there was a new milestone or a new yardstick post Soul to Soul. Actually, the guy who made the biggest impact with James Brown's sound in Ghana was a singer from Sierra Leone. This guy, Geraldo Pino. Stand up for your country. Stand up. Stand up, everybody. Stand up. Stand up for your country. Stand up. Stand up, everybody. Stand up. Francis Foster now owns the Kunte Kinte Hotel, a night spot in Accra. But back then, he was the music director of Pino's band, The Heartbeats. In 1967, we arrived in Ghana 
driving through from Monrovia through Abidjan, and we made our first stop in Kumasi. I remember it well. Funny thing is, when we got here, we didn't have any money. We had a busload of equipment, six musicians, and a driver. So when we parked in front of this place and we came out, we said, we'll play for somewhere to sleep. <laughs> so this gentleman looked at us and said, okay, I'll give you guys a chance. You set up tonight, you play for half an hour. If you're good, I'll give you a place to sleep. And tomorrow we can talk some business, if you're good. We set up and we played, and the guy loved us so much, he gave us a contract for six months. They wound up staying in Ghana for three years, and they rocked the place. And Geraldo Pino had a big impact on the coming career of Fela Kuti. You can hear a lot more about that in a web-exclusive podcast accompanying this program, Pino and Fela in Ghana, narrated by Banning Air. Check it out on afropop.org. Fela first came to Ghana in the mid-60s, and the first band he brought was a jazzy high-life outfit called Kula Lobitos. Here's a taste. <laughs> It's high life time, come on in time, and jump for joy at this swinging club. This brand new place that breaks the grace. It's got the beat, it's got the hit. Fella loved it here. Francis Fuster. He loved the reception he got here. He loved the people. He loved the music that came out of here from all over Ghana. And Fella went everywhere in Ghana, he didn't just stay in Accra. He went to Takrade, he went to the north, he listened to all the music, and most of his music in Kalala Beatles was based on what he heard from Accra, from Ghana. Okay, it's time to meet one of the key producers of Ghana's high life and Afro-funk era, Dick Esilfi Bonzi, known to all as Essie Bonds, 83 years old, when we met him in Accra, Essibons started producing and distributing West African music in 1959 while working as a civil servant, a job he held until he was ready to go full-time into music in 1972. But in the meanwhile, I had been able to convince my father, my late father, to invest in a factory, and it was a joint activity with Polygram International, then they were known as uh, Philips Phonographic Industries. AC Bonds started producing big-name high-life acts like C.K. Mann and K. Jesse. But early in the 70s, he got interested in the funky new sounds coming up in Ghana. One young artist who caught AC Bonds' ear was a then-unknown singer named Jedu Ble Ambole. My first recording was released back in 1973. That's the music that made Ghana to know that there's somebody with the name Ambole. There's a bass line that coming from Temptations. I think it's called Cloud Nine. So I use that as my bass line. Then the song. This song that I released in 1973 was the first ever rap commercially released music in the whole world. If you go to the Guinness Book of Records, they're saying that uh, it was Sugar Hill Gang that came out with rap. If you check the date, you see that it's around 78, 79, and then mine was in 73, commercially. Ever rap music, because if we talk about 
This was rap. This was what we were doing back in the 70s. That song was called Simiguadu. Simigua, it means that I'm sitting on my stool. It means that I'm the king. And that's the song that made me to sit on my stool. Ambole fused high life and funk rhythms in his own way and earned a lasting place in Ghanaian music with Simiguadu. So when I had the bass line, you see that this one is in it. I won't tell you, pretty baby, about a kind new dance. We call it Sammy Guap. I'm going to show you how to do it. Is everybody ready? Yeah. So it's like putting three things together and we have a dance to it. It worked perfectly. It worked perfectly. The Sammy Guap do. Wow, that one takes me way back. Simi Guadu. Hmm. When Essibons heard this, he knew he had a star in his camp. And that was where our good friend Ibo came in. Because I knew he could bring out something that we could sell outside. So I thought the best way was to get together a house band. And that was how Apeja Show Band came in being. The Apeja Show Band featured Ambule as a singer. I was the music director for the band and a guitarist for the band. We talk about KJC, who recently passed away, the City High Life and everything, you know, was uh, produced by AC Bonds. If you talk about CK Man, produced by AC Bonds. Ebo Taylor's music was produced by AC Bonds. There was Western Melody singers uh, produced by AC Bonds. There were so many of them. Here is Jedu and Ebo with the Apagia Show Band and Mumunde. Mumunde, 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 Mumunde. 
long why because when they went out to play you know the people say oh, we want familiar music you know but we kept on for a while in the meantime we done some records so years after when producers whether from america france uk belgium germany whatnot come to license Ghanaian music the stuff apija was producing that's what they look out for so apija what we did in the 70s were way ahead of our time you know What I did was, if I record a Hard Life album, I managed to squeeze one or two uh, Afro beat or Afro funk recordings into the uh, flip side of the album. And that's what Heaven and Kukwanese uh, came on my record. But they were still Hard Life recordings. The saving grace for all Ghanaian musicians in those days was Accra's spectacular live scene. In the early 70s through to the mid 70s, you had live bands playing in bars and in venues at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. So even on a weekday, there would be a band playing for the lunch break and there would be another band who would play in the evening. And definitely on weekends, it's, there's a joint where people are eating tilapia or eating omutu or eating fufu or eating this, and you had a live band. Well, all this came to an end in 1979, when a newly empowered president, Jerry Rollins, imposed the curfew on Ghana, a death blow to live music, after a turbulent decade in Ghanaian politics. There might be curfew maybe about a month, or maybe curfew about two months. Yeah, musicians can handle that. And after that, we'll go back to our nightlife and all that. The nightlife was still on. Banks were still playing. But when Rollins took over, there was curfew for almost about three years continuously. So people get up at six in the morning, by six in the evening they have to be indoors. It killed the nightlife. Musicians over here started traveling out. Those that had to go to Nigeria, Ivory Coast, uh, Liberia, Europe, America, everybody, all the musicians would find out somewhere to go because they couldn't make a living here. Yeah, we were recording, but we were not recording in Ghana. The records companies are shut down. Isibons for the last company to shut down. We the musicians, some of us moved to Abidjan. I had a contract to play in a jazz club in Abidjan. Uh, when I'm not in the country, I'm, I'm in Nigeria or in Lomé. Conflict was recorded in Lomé. Conflict, recorded in 1980, is one of Ebo's most progressive albums. It wasn't widely accepted in its time, but it has survived and it's recently been reissued internationally. What I call that type of music is minor highlights, and I see a connection between Afrobeat and minor highlights. You know, a lot of minor highlights now are being categorized in Britain into Afro-funk. I think one of the reasons for this is you can play a, a highlight in a major scale, but if you play it in a minor scale, it takes you halfway towards the blues in a way. But um, I never saw it as Afro-funk. I saw it as highlight. 
how we wanted to nickname this kind of music was Inkru, Inkru music, like Nkrumah music, Nkrumah era music. So that's why we have uh, the division from Bubu, Cha, Bubu, Cha, Cha, Bubu, to Bubu, 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 Cha, Bubu, Cha, Bubu. You see that the, the, the bass drum is an upbeat. If that was like Bubu, Cha, Cha, Bubu, Cha, Cha, Bubu, Cha, Cha, Bubu. You know, this was one, two, three, four, Bubu, Cha, Bubu, Cha. That's what you hear in conflict. Fans of this music love to compare the great artists of this era, and I should mention that there are many other players in the Afrofunk story we did not get to in this program, so be sure to visit afropop.org for a guide to the rich selection of Ghanaian and Nigerian Afrofunk releases on the market these days. Of course, one of the most popular discussions is to compare the music of Ebo Taylor and his old friend Fela Kuti. Here's how Ebo himself sums it up. I think uh, my music was more deeply into jazz than Fela was actually doing here. Ba -ba -bam, ba -bam, ba -bam, ba -bam, Whilst I was going, you know, I, I, I was all the time playing the jazz, and um, I thought that should be the difference. Love and death. Just the same. listen to Fela's music, you hear amazing horn arrangements, and it's about the dialogue between the drums and the bass and the tenor guitar and the keyboards and the voices and the percussion and the giant conga and the horns. With High Life, you have the same thing. I mean, both Fela and Ebo Taylor did it, but Ebo Taylor did it with so many musicians and so many bands and so many different kinds of music. And it becomes such an intricate conversation. Brothers and sisters, Love 
with love and death. Stay tuned to this program as our Hip Deep series on Ghana continues with a look at the contemporary scene in Accra, hip life, azonto, gospel, the return of live music, and so much more in part two of our Ghana series. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art and from PRX affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Additional funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from Carnegie Hall, presenting Grammy Award winner Yusundur, May 13. Ticket information at carnegiehall.org. Thanks to Ebo Taylor, Mark Levine, John Collins, Aaron Sukura, Benjamin Lebrave and Aquaba Music, Morgan Greenstreet for epic transcriptions, Rocky Dawuni and all our friends in Ghana for their help with the program, and a special thanks to Linda Goldstein and all our Kickstarter backers. We could not have done this without you. Visit afropop.org for interviews, mixtapes, blog posts, videos, and more from Ghana. And don't miss our web-exclusive podcast, Pino and Fela in Ghana. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Banning Air. With help from Sean Barlow and Mark Levine. And join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan. Manning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Ben Richman, and I'm Georges Collinet. When I'm at your